The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Uh, will be recorded, apparently. So they reinserted into the woman, and either that woman or a donor woman, um, a surrogate, what's called a surrogate mother. In Hebrew, it's called Pundakai. Right? Everybody just said he needs credit. Yeah, everybody just said he needs so that either son they transplant the, the embryo um, into a, a surrogate or back into the same woman who receives the egg. So there's a lot of halachic issues involved. Um, we'll have to get into most of them. The question here today, what's relevant, um, is is the question is many times the there's multiple um, what they call pre-embryos. Because when they when they uh, when they have when they stimulate the woman to produce eggs, so they want to don't only do one or two. Usually they do multiple. They retrieve multiple eggs because they want to look for the best quality egg. So there's usually five. At least these days they do at least six. Usually five or six eggs that they then fertilize, and those eggs are then frozen. Um, it could be used for the future. It doesn't have to be used right away. Now they're actually able to. It's um, cybro, I think it's called cybro, uh, something freezing, where they have a different method of freezing them where they actually can last up to 15 years or so of these eggs. So, um, so many people, let's say they go, they have cancer, they're going for treatment. Women, so many times that can affect their, or the man is going, has cancer. So they can um, then fertilize eggs before the person gets treated. So this way they have for the future. So the problem is many times, so you have, they'll be freezing, even if they only use one, they'll freeze the other five. Um, and it can stay, like we're saying, for 15 years, at least now, that's how much, how long this can stick around. So that means it's in some freezer somewhere in the lab, you know, you can wave when you pass by. I have a friend who had cancer, so he tells me every time he passes by the lab, he waves, he waves to his, uh, his, his, not his, his pre-embryos that are in the lab. Um, so the question is, um, this particular case we're going to discuss today, but it's relevant as we'll see to many other halachic issues, is what happens many times, this has been happening, as divorces with the food they called off here, he said he's a, yeah, he said, oops, okay. I don't know, but he's, he said he's coming. Um, so, uh, Bottom line is, so the, the eggs are in the freezer, these are not eggs, sorry, pre-embryos, which are fertilized in the freezer. The couple then has issues, um, marital issues, and they decide they're getting divorced, or they decide, one, one side of the couple says, I don't want to have children. So the question becomes now, what happens then, at that point? Um, who owns them technically? Many times the woman will want to, if she didn't have kids before, if she, even if she did, she still wants to continue the process. So the question is, um, legally, and halachically, who gets to make that decision of what happens to those pre-embryos? Um, can the woman continue the process after the divorce? Obviously, the man can't, or can the man say, I want to um, you know, pre-implant pre implant it? Yeah, they're they're already, it's an egg and a sperm that were, that were fertilized together, in the petri dish. And, and they were frozen? And then they were frozen after the fertilization. Uh -huh. So all that has to be done now is has to be taken out, thawed out. Wow put it in the microwave, and then you, you <laughs> implant it in a, in a woman. So it could be in any woman. It could be in, a, it could be in the person, but the husband's really, next wife. It's really the, he decides. It's really the father and the mother, and they're already, it's already been uh, frozen. 
Right, so it's frozen after it was fertilized. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about if, if he has a sperm, so that belongs to him. If he has, you could it. do that also. It used to be they freeze sperm, they freeze eggs. Now, it's they 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 freeze it post fertilization. So you have what's called a preembryo. So the question is really who owns it? And I put down a number of questions here. So in the so, um, so, so a number of questions here. Number one is, what is the halachic status of a pre-embryo? Meaning, um, when you have this pre-embryo, is it considered a life? Is it not considered a life? Obviously, there's a lot of issues besides this question of who owns it. There's a question of, can, can you destroy it? Can you just flush it down the toilet? What, what happens to the, pre the extra pre-embryos? What happens 20 years down the line? where it's no longer usable. What can you do with the pre-embryo, according to Allah? Number two is, is there even an owner? Does someone own, do I, do you own, or does anyone own their genetic term? So it means, uh, it's not only really relevant to this, so meaning you have this, again, it's in some freezer somewhere, just because, you know, it happens to be produced, your genetic material, does that mean I own it? Um, does that, who owns it? Does the mother own it? Do I own it? Do they both own it? Or does no one own it? Meaning it's, an, it's a separate entity. It's a potential life, now has its own entity, you know, it's, you don't own your kids, technically. So this is like my offspring, I don't own the, I don't own my genetic material. Yeah. Do the embryos get carried by the mother, or that's not how they, they, they Could they be grow. afterwards, meaning when it's ready to be used. It could be implanted into uh -huh. the mother who gave the egg. Could be implanted to a surrogate mother, it means another one. Could be the guy gets remarried, they got divorced, now the guy gets remarried. He now wants to use that embryo for his new wife. Planted his new wife, right, so you, know, you don't know. A lot, a lot of options of what you can do. Okay, so so again, so who the question is who owns it? Is it the mother? Is it the father? Is it both? Or again, is it its own entity, halachically speaking? Um, and again, the, all these questions are legal questions. I'll see two also in, in, in which the courts are now. Is, is, is it for sure the father or the mother? No, I'm saying it could be its own entity and no one owns it. Could be you don't own your genetic material, right? If you don't own it, then who? Has the ah, so we'll talk about no. we'll talk about it. Louisiana right. has a law that anyone couldn't use it. You no, know, it's meaning you have right. to say. No, does, 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 does the bank or whatever it is, wherever they hold it, have just as much of the right to use it as the parents? So, uh, so we'll see. Dif yeah. Depending on different states, that legally, halachically, it's a different child. Halachically, if you determine that it is considered life, is that any different than a regular child at that point in terms of ownership? Meaning, once you determine that it's considered life, we'll get we'll get there. Right? No, I don't think father has ownership rights. It's not life. It's potential life. It's frozen. Freeze. I mean, it's it's no one. I don't think anyone's gonna say it's a life. Question is, is it a potential life? Is it the same thing as over? No one says it's like a life child. I don't think that that's not even happening. No, but the, the ownership that the father has in the life would also apply. Yes, I don't know if the father doesn't have ownership. It's to you, right? Well, right, it's Chosim and the child. Yeah, he's saying he has obligations to his child. He doesn't own his child. No one owns, you don't own your child. And maybe under Obamacare, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Say, you don't own, you don't own well, your child. He's Chosim and the child, right? Right, it's Chosim. He can sell, right. sell the oh, birth okay, care so and things like that. Right. So we'll get there. So, uh, who, uh, we'll talk about that. Okay, so What's so the idea that the, the bank wouldn't own it though. I mean, you give it a the bank owns it. The, the question is, well, first of all, today, I mean, in most cases, and you should, if anyone has to go through this, you should sign a contract. First of all, with the, you, most any fertility clinic has contracts that they sign. What happens to it when yeah. uh, you don't show up for 20 years? The problem is, oh, right, right. it's a big problem because they have thousands of them stored. Oh, 
and eventually people just don't show up. 15 years later, they're still sitting in the freezer. Yeah. So I have to store it off. I spoke oh, to a guy. Stop paying their uh, Right, to stop paying because I evicted it. I'm paying your freezer fees. It's like Lakewood. So that's it's a big problem. Yeah. It's becoming a bigger problem as more and more are stored. We don't have enough room. That makes sense, there's also there's a lot of shayels with Shabbos and that's the game where you saw the Lord also the other shayels because let's say can you pikoch nefesh meaning can I mechal Shabbos to save the life of the frozen embryo meaning let's say the, the freezer there's a power habit on Shabbos so in Uber we pass in uh, for a regular uh, woman who's pregnant Allah is that uh, we are Michal Shabbos, yeah. even for the safety of which is it's not so simple. But we are we violate Shabbat to save the life of a of a fetus on Shabbos. Question is, what happens here if the freezer, if the power goes out in the lab on Shabbos? Can you be Michal Shabbos to to save the? Can you take it, carry it? Right, can you plug and generate? Can you get a guy to do it? So it's not. Uh, it's also. But so, so it's not. We'll talk about that same child sort of what you were saying. So have a din uber. So that's really question number three here. Do we treat it as a fetus? And question number four is, um, as you're saying earlier, in a certain sense, the one's position regarding abortion determine one's view regarding disposal of this, what they call this a pre-embryo. Okay? So that's the halachic question, the legal questions. Since this is a, we get, do get legal credit. Two lawyers there are getting credit. Lawyers. Two Texas lawyers that are getting credit. So, uh, so sorry, there was a, this is just to know, a neighboring, a lovely neighboring state of Louisiana has a fascinating law, one of the only state in the union that has this law. It's based on a lawsuit, a, they, they passed a very firm state, um, very, uh, so they view these pre-embryos as the same as a fetus, legally. So there was a case, um, um, there was an actress, her name is Sophia Vergara, I don't know who she is, I don't know her. I think she's famous, isn't she? Famous. Okay, so uh, so she um, the, she and her um, husband, a boyfriend, had this had an in vitro fertilization done um, with and they had two embryos and they were stored. In, this is in California. What happened was um, they got they ended up separating, and the husband is so again I don't know if he was a husband. Name was a fiance. He was a fiance, a former fiance. Name is Lo another actor. So he sued and he wanted to use these preemptives claim there is you know, a right to them. So I'll just read you what it says. It says um, he sued in the state of Louisiana because they had uh, so they moved the embryos to Louisiana. He had them moved. And uh, it says this December 2016 he filed a right to live lawsuit against Vergaro um, by three plaintiffs namely Vergaro's embryos and he had names Emma and Isabella these two embryos and their trustee, James Charbonnet. The purpose of the suit is to give the embryos a chance to further develop using a surrogate carry. He wanted to use the embryos and implant them in a different woman. Um, so it says, while well, a contract of, um, between Vergara and Loeb had been signed, which is very important if you're going to do this, because of these cases, you have to should have a contract between the husband and wife. In case of divorce, what happens? So it's been signed prior to the creation of the embryo, stipulating that neither party could use the embryos without the consent of the other. The lawsuit tries to void the agreement. It doesn't say how, but the suit also tries to terminate parental rights of Vergara because by keeping them in a tank in a medical clinic, clinic she allegedly abandoned and neglected the embryos. She left him there, and she, she was, uh, wasn't there. So Loeb is not part of the lawsuit. 
Okay, so legal cases novel and takes advantage of Louisiana's embryo laws, which is in August uh, 2017. So this case was dismissed, actually, but the law, Louisiana's law, is like this. In 1986, Louisiana took a dramatic step by passing the most stringent laws in the nation pertaining to embryos. It's a law that bestows upon an embryo the right to a judicial person, says Dr. Taylor. And this simply means whoever is in control of it must give it a good opportunity at life at some point. So it means they're saying this is a life, the embryo is a life, even the freezer, freezer, this pre-embryo is alive, and therefore, if parents don't want to use it, the, the state or whoever else wants the facility that's storing them has a right to give it to someone else who's going to give this embryo life and implant it. Somewhere. So your embryos in Louisiana, your fertilized embryos can be then used, given to another woman, um, and, and that's, what, that's basically what it says. It's one of a kind law in the country that defines an embryo as a judicial person. Um, so basically the, the state is preventing them from being thrown out. The state doesn't allow, every other state says if you finish the pre-embryos, you can discard them, you can flush them down the toilet. Um, Louisiana says no, you can't flush them down the toilet, you have to find someone who's going to use them, which is crazy. Okay, this is the state that people marry the sister, same thing. But uh, I think, uh, I think, what's it called when you marry Oh, incest? Incest is, I think, permitted, but... But Okay. Um, so anyways, it goes through the whole law here, but um, we'll take a break for lunch. Uh, get, get to lunch. We'll resume shortly. Continue. So, so uh, now for Louisiana's law, so let's, let's start. What the uh, halacha says, uh, some of the sources, so... As we'll see, IVF obviously didn't exist in the times of the Gemara, but um, it's uh, there's a lot of interesting sources that are relevant. Most of them are, uh, as we'll see. So the first thing is, what, uh, is the question is, what's the halachic status of a pre-embryo? I mean, well, actually, let's let's first start with the ownership issue. So the, the first thing is, we know is Pesukim and Pashas Mishpatim, which is source number one on the sheet, which says. Um, famous plastic, it's talking about totally out of context. It's talking about two people are fighting, assaulting each other. Two people are having a fight, and mistakenly, um, um, a pregnant woman's walking by, and one of them, um, one of the people takes a punch at this guy, and he mistakenly hits the pregnant woman. She miscarries her child. So, Lachir is right. Yes, the, the, this is where the source, more or less, which shows us that according to most post at least, um, that abortion is not considered with sikha, it's not considered murder. Um, because the Torah says there, um, in that Pasik, in Passion of the Torah says, It means the woman, there was no. Um, uh, there was no fatality on the woman's part. The woman remained alive, so there was no murder, says the Torah. Basically, the Torah says he has to pay damages. Okay? So you see that if you cause a woman to miscarry, it's not considered murder. It's just a monetary issue. You have to compensate. Um, that has to be compensated for. Okay? So according to most Paiskin, abortion is not, uh, is not considered uh, uh, and according to many, I mean, according to Moshe Feinstein, he is. He's one of the uh, exceptions to the rule. Um, actually, recently, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, I was uh, camping, I was out in the middle of nowhere, and I got a call from Houston. I love here about about abortion question in Houston. And uh, I didn't have phone service. We were texting back and forth. I was in Big Bend. 
Um, Reuven, thank you for the. Oh, you went there? Need, how we went. Want to know how was it? Good. Can Talk I get about it. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. But anyway, so his abortion question came up while I was in Big Ben. To make a long story short, I had to give him uh, other people, other abundance numbers. He ended up call, calling her as well. So they said, listen, in this case, whatever the case, the details of the case was, you could be Mako. Going to Moscow, post-game abortion could be only the Rabbanon. So it's not even a derisive. So, so the, but it's based on, this is basically the source for how, how Halacha views abortion um, from this passage. What's interesting is, and we're not going to get into all the details, it's too complicated, too convoluted, but uh, there seems to be an argument. That the mission is a Mishnah in, which I didn't put on the sheet, but there's a Mishnah in... Um, in Avakama um, discussing who gets the damages. Uh, the, the Mishnah says very clearly, the Mishnah says that the compensation goes to the father. Okay? That's what the Mishnah says. Um, and so, and that's how, and, but it's like is what happens if there's no father? Does the woman, let's say she's Amana, does the, because the Mishnah says, I guess, read the Mishnah. Actually, so it says the nice and about. So you evaluate the value of the fetus, how much she work. And that's the question: How do you evaluate it? And you pay the. It says the nice and about. The compensation goes to the husband. Okay. Some would say it might be sexist. We'll talk about it in a second. Why the husband should get. Compensation. And says an Ain Labal the Nisan Yarsha. Even if there's no husband, says the Mishnah, the compensation goes to the Yarsha Habal. Okay, to his inheritance. Okay, and then the third part of the Mishnah says she was a Shifcha, Gyaris, then Pater, there's no compensation. So we're not gonna get into all the details, but basically the Bambam Paskins um, that uh, that uh, if the husband's not around, he has none, he has uh, he has no Yarshin then you would give the money to the Isha. That's how the Ram Paskins. But the other Rishayim very clearly argue, the rabbit holds, that uh, the Isha never gets the compensation, the, the wife will never get the compensation. So someone who used this, the question is this a raya as to who owns the fetus, in a normal case, as you would say, in a, in a regular pregnancy. It would seem like this, not like this Rishayim, would be relevant as to the ownership of the fetus. Um, but again, without getting all to, all to deals, the Rush Paskins, the woman would never get it in the case, and how we apply that to the case of disputed embryos. So many parts, some, some want to apply it, but the Zamlachani Goldberg says it's totally irrelevant because um, he says in that in the application to Hamachlek is irrelevant because the reason why the, the blood does go to the father has to do with it because it's a monetary claim here of damages. It has nothing to do with ownership, meaning who, who um, you know, so it's meaning who's the inheritor, so to speak, just like uh, you were saying before. A person has chiyuvim to his children, he has obligations to his children, he also has, based on those obligations, and the same thing with his wife, therefore he's considered the inheritor, so to speak. But I mean, it could be, we're not dealing with the question of ownership here. That's what Zalman Chani Goldberg wants to say, that has nothing to do with ownership. The fact that these, Shorim, these early authorities are arguing as to who gets the compensation for the fetus in a regular case of uh, miscarriage, of a forced abortion, so to speak. So it's not a proof to a case of embryos where it's, here it's a question of ownership. That's what Mzal Nechami wants to say. Okay, so now, just to, so that's one aspect, which again is important, but Mzal Nechami wants to say it's not applicable. 
Um, if you turn the page here, so, so there are, I found three different articles um, written on this topic in, in uh, journals, journals in Eretz Israel. One was written by uh, Bishal Israeli, who was uh, a guy, he was a dying for the Rabbanut, he died around 10 years ago. Uh, he arrived in the Rabbanut in Eretz Israel, the, the head bezin in Eretz Israel. Um, he was Rashiv America's Rav. He has an article, and this David Lau happens to be the current Rav Rashi. He wrote an article before he was Rav Rashi on this topic, on this question. It seemed like because it came up, there was a case in Eretz Israel where this came up, and uh, and then um, you'll see there's other there's argues on them. So the first the first uh, articles want to compare this dispute over embryos. They want to compare it to a regular case of shutfus. It means when you have a business partnership, and at some point one partner wants to pull out of, of business, so the, the Gemara is a Mishnah in, uh, in, it's in Baba Kama, again, sorry, Baba Metziah actually, the Mishnah Baba Metziah that discusses this, when you have any business partnership, and uh, one of the partners wants to pull out before the term of the partnership is ended, how does that work halachically? So they want to compare um, this case, when you get, marriage is really a business partnership even having children and you decide to, to uh, do IVF. So he's saying that's, there's no partnership greater than a marriage. It's no different than any other partnership. And here they made, they made up together, they're gonna conjoin their sperm and egg and they're gonna have this partnership of a, uh, you know, of a child. Now the one, one of the partners decided to pull out of the partnership. Okay, so halachically they want to compare it to the similar, it's, it's very similar, it's just a very regular question of chesha mishpat, of uh, business ethics and how does that work? So the, the, again, the Gemara there in Bab Metziah discusses what happens when one partner wants to pull out. So in the Shulchan Aruch, Paskins, like this, I read you from the Shulchan Aruch, this is um, the Code of Jewish Law in Choshen Mishpat, dealing with this question of business partnerships. So it says like this, I turn on the table for you. It says if two people made a partnership, and they weren't koveya, they didn't set up an end to when the partnership ends. At which point of their investment venture does it end? So what calls um, Manchiyirta? So if they never decided, there's no, there was no end time. Um, they can split any time they want. Um, and they could each. That's if they both put in an X amount in this business venture. Then they want to split the split. At one point, one partner wants to pull out. He can pull out what he invested. Um, what the if that the things they invested are not possible to split or by splitting it there would be a hefsid, it would be a loss so then says the okay so that's sorry I started too early that's non-relevant because in this case it's not possible to split obviously you can't unless you can't split the embryo Right, so you're not going to be able to split the pre-embryo and the, uh, the frozen embryo. But the Shulchan Aruch goes on to say, how is man, you do all the mechira size of schera. Sorry, let me just, okay, sorry, let's skip down. In low covers, man l'shotfis, if they didn't set up any time. Um, I, can, I can't find the right halacha. thought it was here. Um, oh, here it is. Sorry, so it started too late. It's Allah Tazvav, it's in Kufayin Alf. It says, Kufayin Vav, it says like this. Ashutfin, a partnership, his name, she yamdu bishutfiz man katsu. They made a partnership for a set time. 
Each one can stop the partner from removing himself from the partnership. Okay? And they can't separate, they can't break up the partnership until the time of the end of the venture comes. And either all the money is used up, it's a total loss. Okay? So they can't do anything until the end of the venture. So basically, according to this halacha, Chochanarach and the Ramah later on says, says very similarly that uh, one can't pull out um, of a venture unless they both agree. Okay? So, so uh, these two uh, articles that I read, Vishal Israeli and David Lau, both say that, as we're saying, marriage is analogous to this commercial partnership. Okay? And they both agree to, sh- to it's a communal partnership. By commingling their sperm and egg, this is what they're doing. So therefore, as he's saying here, just they're <coughs> using this halach and the shachanah, that a partner may not terminate the agreement before the achievement of the common goal. Here the common goal was to have a child. So just because you decided you're not happy with your spouse anymore and you want to get divorced, that doesn't give you the right, you know, just like in a business partnership, I can't pull out. We have a contract um, to have this business venture together. So here too. So if she wants to continue the process and, and have the child, we're stuck. The husband has to allow um, but so okay, that would, that's Allah and Shachana. So they're saying there's a concept um, called an inus. That when you have a partnership and let's say some unforeseen circumstance happen, let's say one of the partners gets uh, sick, gets cancer, or he's no longer able to work, or he dies. So obviously in a case like that where there was an unforeseen circumstance that happened in the business partnership, then the halacha will allow you to pull out of that side, to pull out of the business partnership. Okay, so there's an unavoidable circumstances which halacha calls an inus. Okay, it's, it's something that's beyond the partner's control. So an illness, a disability, death, those are all legitimate grounds for terminating the partnership. So therefore they want to say um, that's the same thing here. In a marriage, everything was going well. Now there's all of a sudden one, one of the sides was unforeseen circumstances, they decide to get divorced. Okay, whatever the case is. So they're saying that's, that's analogous to, you know, one of the partners getting a cancer. One of the partners dying. So just like the pull out of business partnership. So if there's some unforeseen circumstance in the relationship that happened, so that would be sufficient grounds to consider an inus according to these two opinions. Um, that, um, that's, the, the, you know, as meaning the assumption is, they also bring an umdana that the assumption is, it's predicated on a continuous harmonious marriage. So if we have a case where the, for whatever reason the marriage isn't working now, now so they're saying so that that shutfist, that partnership is now over. That's what uh, these two um, chuvas want to say. So that I found, happens to be, I found the Abdullah's journal, which is a magazine when there was a guy in town a few years ago named Barth Brody, taught in Baylor College of Medicine, big medical assistant, he made Aliyah. Around a year ago he left me uh, all his, and he recently died left me all these, his medical journals, so this journal called Asya, and there was, there's an article here about it, where uh, this, this, uh, well, I have no idea who he is, Yoezer Ariel has an old article on this question, and he brings, he quotes these other chuvas, and he argues on them. He says that that halacha of breaking up a partnership, a business partnership based on Inus, is only, he says, it's only in the context we find it of a pile and a, an employee and employer. 
Okay, so I have, a, and this is a whole different class in business ethics, let's say it's a question of any contract, where let's say I order an Uber and I cancel. They charge you a $5 fee, I think. All right, so how does that work? Can you cancel, you hired someone, your contractor, and then you cancel. How, how does that work? How, how, are they allowed to pull out of the contract? Can you cancel and then you have to compensate? So he says that's where an onus is relevant. That's where the concept of onus comes in. Only in a, if, if it's an employee-employee or a contractual relationship like that. But where you have a shutfis, where you have a partnership, he says that halach of onus is not applicable, he wants to say. So I put here number two. And he says, um, he says uh, that's like any defect, meaning you know, let's say I buy something, I buy a car, and you know, a year later there's an unforeseen circumstance, I don't need the car anymore. It doesn't give me a right to pull out of the, you know, that's not a Mecca Tais. Mecca Tais, um, when you have unforeseen circumstances, this is what Halacha calls a Mecca Tais, you bought something and it was a pre-existing condition. If there was a pre-existing uh, something, I don't like using that word, Obama care, you don't want to use that word today, it's a very highly charged word, pre-existing condition, but, but the point is that if something existed prior that I, that I wasn't disclosed, that's a defect, that's something that I, that I can return, that the partnership breaks up of that. But here we're saying there was nothing pre-existing. You thought you could be married for, for 50 years together and then marriage didn't work out. So that's, not, um, that's not a mecha thought. There was nothing pre-existing. You know, you, you know, at the end of the day, you found someone else, whatever the case. Okay, so that he says, that's an unanticipated divorce. Um, he's saying that's not something that would allow for the breakup of a, of a partnership. And therefore, he's, he, this rabbi says, it's not clear, that he even allows the, he allows the woman to continue on with the process even if the husband doesn't want. So they get divorced. She still has a right since she partly, she owns 50% of that uh, pre-embryo in the lab. She has a right to now take it um, and, and continue on with the process. <coughs> she wants to implant it, to have it implanted. Okay, similar to um, Mr. Loeb with Rogera, uh, whatever her name was. Okay, so that's uh, so. No, he he would hold like Louisiana. This uh, opinion, um, uh, uh, Yoazer, would hold like the laws of Louisiana, and he allows the IV, the uh, the IVF press to continue. Okay, so so now one thing is for sure, not like Louisiana. That everyone would agree. All opinions, all halachic opinions, would agree that in a case where both sides don't want it, that you can't the lab or someone else doesn't have a right to implant. It. Meaning, it's, he, the, these both opinions are going with the ownership is uh, the parents. Both parents own the preembryo. Um, the, the question is, you know, they're not going that it's a separate entity, which is as Louisiana is saying, it's a, it's a potential life, therefore it's considered a separate entity. And the parents don't own it. In Louisiana, like we're saying, is someone else could come along, along in the lab and say we want it implanted into a third party. It would have nothing to do with these two, with the, with the two parents. Where the, the egg and the sperm don't. Okay, so everyone would agree. That's what I put down here. At the end, number three, all opinions agree. A physician um, takes either sperm, egg, or pre-embryo without consent. That is stuff. Meaning you can't go and, and now use it um, for someone else. Okay, that would be theft. Okay, according to both of these opinions. So that's that's uh, shadow number one. So there's, an, there's another very important question here, which is, at which point does do we view as we're saying because uh, it's really a, it's, it's more it's a bigger question really which is who is the parents right you know there was that Dr. Seuss book who is who is my mother right so it's today with medical technology it's a real question when you have IVF because not all question is do we can say halachically are those 
the egg donor and the sperm donor are considered parents. We'll talk about that in a little. But also, many times we're saying is the woman is not implanted because she can't carry a baby. So they, they retrieve the egg from, let's say, the wife, but then they use a surrogate mother, um, a third woman, to, to transplant, to carry the baby to term. So the question is, halachically speaking, and legally, that's also a question, who's the mother? Is it the egg donor, the one who donated the mother, donated the genetic material? Is she the mother? Or is it the surrogate, this woman who's giving birth to the child? Is she the mother? Or are they, the, maybe this baby has two mothers? Okay, maybe halachically or legally even. They might both be the mother. And obviously that's relevant to uh, hundreds of halachic questions, meaning as far as uh, sitting shiva, as far as uh, everything, keep it up, eh? Saying, you know, there's, there's many questions. Who is the mother's child? Um, okay, so that's, that's uh, the question is, so even whatever we're going to say, and this is um, by the implantation, uh, when there's only that question is relevant after you, you had two mothers, let's say two women, or not even one, where they re-implanted the fetus, and then who's, is it the genetic donor, or is it the one who gave birth? But here we're talking about an embryo which was never even implanted yet. Okay, so it's just sitting in some freezer. So does, can, does maternal concept of a mother even begin at that point? Can you be a mother to something sitting in the freezer? Like I said, my friend used to wave his, waves to his thing when he passes by. Is that, is it really even considered your offspring? Is that considered your other father? Before it was even implanted. Meaning, at least one, once it's in the body, it's growing, it's a, it's mamash life, like we said before. It could be Mechal Shabbos, you could violate Shabbat to save it. Here, you're talking about it's a frozen genetic material in a freezer somewhere. Who said there's, there's even a concept of mother and father? Okay, that you, we're, we're talking about ownership. Okay, so that's the question here. Do paternity and maternity begin at conception or birth? Um, two basic approaches determine who the mother is when one woman contributes the egg and the other carries the baby. This is, a, a, like we're saying, this, this question is really a question not only in a case of, of a pre-embryo, it's a question even when you have when you a regular case of IVF process, who's the mother and even who's the father, as we'll see. It's not so much. So, so the, meaning even if it's the father's sperm, the question is, is there yichas? Um, I'm going to talk about that soon, meaning because he really, the mother at least, you know, you know who the mother is usually. Um, right? The father, as we're going to talk about, it can always be, you never know who the father is. That's why logically, Judaism, we always go where the mother, Judaism is based on maternity, on the mother. So we always know who the mother is. Um, the father, you never know. I mean, the male man could be the most child, a lot of choices for the father. Right, so, so the mother, we always know the mother is. So, the, so as far as IVF is concerned, you turn to the back. So, so it's fascinating. It's, again, it's very hard to, to uh, halachically to decide this. Um, when they asked Shlem Zalman, this is probably, I think, the only one, he has uh, five volumes of tshuva, it's the only tshuva he said uh, he doesn't know. When he came to this question of who is the, who's considered the mother, it's also relevant, as, of course, very relevant to Geras, because conversion, because if one of them, if either the egg donor or the surrogate mother is, a, is not Jewish, so then you have a question of do we have to convert the child? Because if whoever the mother is, if, if the mother is not Jewish, one of those two is not Jewish, so then I have a question on the child. Okay, so when they asked Rishab Zalman, he, he said he wasn't sure. Um, Yashiv um, said he believed that the egg donor um, is considered, the one who donates genetic material is the mother. That's Yashiv's opinion in this case. Um, she's con- and, and the surrogate, in case we have a surrogate, he said she's just a cleaver, she's just an incubator, technically speaking, the one who's carrying the baby to birth. That's how Rabbi Yashem viewed it. Shlomo Zalman, again, um, is, uh, said that uh, he, he wasn't sure, 
and he thought he was leading more to the side that actually the surrogate would be considered the mother. That it goes um, by not by conception, but it goes by who gives birth to the child. So the surrogate, since she's giving birth to the child, even though it's not her egg, it's not her genetic material, she's considered the mother. And there's, there's many rise to this. Um, it's interesting, there's very few early rise. One of the earliest rise a few weeks ago, the, they bring a raya, let's tell you, this is on the side, from Dina, from the Parshas Vayetze, the fascinating Gemara in, in the end of Brachas. Gemara says that, uh, as we know, Yaakov had two wives and two shvachas, two, two concubines, and four wives, Jacob. So, and he, every, it was all, all the wives knew, as we know, he thought they all, all the wives, for whatever reason, had fertility problems. Everyone except Leah, right? Sarah, Rivka, um, and Rachel all had fertility issues. All the uh, four mothers. Okay, the only one was Leah. The only one who didn't have fertility issues from all our four mothers was Leah. So um, it said the Gemara says there discusses that whether you're allowed to pray for the gender of your child. It's the last daf in brachas, I believe. Last mission brachas, and it's the daf samach, I think. So the Gemara there says. Um, you can't pray for the gender of a child. So it says, I, Gemara says, Leah, we see, did pray. What's the story? The Gemara brings a story, it's a fascinating medrash. Again, it's a Gadotah, but Gemara says, uh, let's tell you quickly, Gemara says like this, Gemara says that, um, that what happened was, Leah got pregnant with her fourth child, she was pregnant on her fourth, and Rachel wasn't yet pregnant on her first. Rachel didn't have the first. She, so it says, Leah realized that if she has, if she gives birth to a boy, they knew they were all going to have 12 shvatim together, all four wives. That there's only be 12 shvatim, 12 tribes. So she realized that if she gives birth to a boy, that she, that there's no longer, Rachel will have less tribes than the shvachas will have. Because, I don't know if you do the math, she already had four, and each shvachas already gave birth to two, or three. I don't know. So therefore, whatever the math is, I don't have enough time, that uh, she'll, that, will end, uh, that Rachel will end up having less She'll only be able to have one boy. She'll be less than the shvachas. So it says she davened that she should give birth to a girl. So it says what happened? A miracle. The Gemara says a miracle happened. She was really pregnant with a boy. And the gender, when she davened, the gender switched and she gave birth to Dina. Okay, so according to, now the Stupshat and Rashi says it was just a miracle, it changed. The Miri says there, Miri says Pshat and the Gemara is that no, Rachel got pregnant the same time as Leah. And Rachel was going to give birth to a girl, to Dina. And Leah was pregnant really with a boy, with Yosef. Okay, and what happened was that when, Re- when Leah prayed, the fetuses got switched. And Rachel gave birth to, uh, to, uh, to Yosef, and Leah gave birth to Dina. So what the Torah says, Dina is Bas, is bas Leah. The Torah calls Dina Bas Leah, and Yosef is Bas Rachel. So you see this is the first case of surrogate mother, where the egg, the genetic material was Rachel's, um, but Leah gave birth. Well, Dina was Rachel's, and Leah gave birth to Dina. It's Rabbi Yosef. What? Rabbi Yosef would say the other way then that Yosef is. Uh, right. According to Rabbi Yosef, right. <laughs> right. So that's one source that they want to bring. But the guy to come out, we don't just bring Allah. It's a lot of different sources. We're not going to get into all the sources now. But Shlom uh, Zalman said he doesn't know. So bottom line is, why is this relevant here? Is because number three, I explained that according to Shlom Zalman. It's, it's a suffix. And by the way, halachically, we today, if IVF is done, we're either the genetic donor or 
the surrogate mother is a non-Jewish, we require games. Everyone, everyone in the world will require a suffix because of that. They'll convert the child. They'll do a conversion on the child in Israel and in America. So meaning if either one, because of Shlomo Zalman's opinion, so therefore we always do a conversion to make sure to cover all the bases, to cover all the sheets. Because well, yeah, actually we wouldn't need a conversion. The genetic doctrine part of that. So the bottom line is, so the guy, what, what uh, someone wants to propose here is, is a, um, according to Shlomo Zalman, it's a suffix. That means it's a suffix who the mother is. Because once, if she's only the egg donor, according to Shlomo Zalman, she's not necessarily the mother at this point yet. So when the embryo, the pre-embryo is in the freezer, the husband <coughs> could say, listen, it's not yours to decide. I'm for sure the father. You're a suffix if you're the mother, because according to Shlomo Zalman, it's a suffix. So you want to take it from me, so you have to bring a proof that it's your child. Because you might not own this, you might not be the mother at all. So therefore you have no right, according to Shlomo Zalman, to, to, to go and continue the process. That's one explanation. Zalman um, Chaim uh, Globerg says this whole thing is irrelevant again. He says, he says that uh, the action is a son of Shlomo Zalman. He says paternity is, is again the question here is a Chazal Mishpah question, the question of ownership. Paternity is irrelevant. Who's the mother? Who's the father? That's not a question. I could not be the mother halachically, but I could still have ownership in some in a certain sense because it came from my body. So he says that you know it's, it's purely a business related, a business ethics issue. It's not a question of yichus and of, of uh, that's what Zalman Chami says, so it's, that's irrelevant. Now, on the other side, by the way, he says another fascinating thing. Um, the Shulchanar, the, the, the Sekel and Shulchanar discuss a case, it's actually a Gemara, the Gemara discusses the, what we call the Jewish Immaculate Conception, um, which is that uh, the, Gemara, the Gemara brings a case of a certain woman, she went into a bathhouse, she bathed in the, the bathhouse, and she, she came out, she, got pre- she came out, she was pregnant. And and uh, <laughs> I guess so. So let me finish quickly. So she came out and she got she was uh, she got pregnant because someone it says it's a, I forgot the story. It was a king actually, who who his his zera his sperm was in the bath water. She got pregnant that way. Now medically is that possible? Probably not. But that's what the Gemara brings in the story. And so the, in Shachanarch and in, in Avanazar discusses this case and discusses who's is who's the father. And he's not a mamzerus. You say the father that he's the father, even though there was no bia. This is really, a, in a certain sense, the first case of artificial insemination in the Talmudic times, where you know. So she, again, there was no. The father wasn't there. She was just artificially inseminated in the bathhouse, so to speak. She bathed in there, and the sperm went in, and she got pregnant. So the chalk is The question is, who's the father in that case? So the because this is a question, by the way, same thing. Relevant to IVF, to artificial insemination. So there are Paiskin who say, it's literally as he says, that uh, in case of artificial insemination or, or IVF, the father is not considered the father, because there's no yichus. We can't apply it. You know, it's Machaik is a Paiskin in Avanezer, in this story. Chalk is Machaik and uh, Beis Shmuel, who the two Nasekel, the, the commentaries in Shokhanel, discuss this case, and, and uh, the Beis Shmuel says that he is considered the father. In that case, where she was impregnated through the bathwater, he says he, the father, who Zara was, is considered the father logically, for Yerusha, whatever it is, for inheritance purposes, um, whatever else it is. Um, but according to the Chalkis Mechaikek, he argues, and um, others argue, and they say, no, the father's not considered the father. So, so that's what I put down on the bottom here. While most poets can assume that the contributor sperm is the full-fledged father of the child for many years of halacha, such as Chalitza, it's also relevant to Khalid. So the woman in our case can claim that it's not universally accepted. So this is the counter-argument to the first argument. Because the woman can say here, 
since there's a machlok as a paskin, there are different opinions as to whether when, you, when a woman's artifice, so to speak, the father is not around, but his, however his zara got into the woman and she became pregnant through his sperm. So he's, since some opinions say that he's not considered the father, according to halacha, so then she could say, the right, listen, you have no, you have no connection to this preamble, according to that. So that would be the counter-argument. Um, now, just to finish off, so assuming the number six here, assuming the partnership has ended, so let's assume, like we said before, like those opinions say the partnership has ended, so how does it work? How do you proceed with the embryo? Again, you can't chop it in half. So what do you do? So, um, so here it's an interesting question of what we call this, this Gemara's famous sugis in Shas called Gudag. That means two partners, we're partners in a property, in a field. And I want to sell the property, you don't want. One partner wants to sell the real estate, one doesn't. So the Gemara talks about this, something called good ayaga. That means you can't decide to sell the property without my permission, because we're partners. But if you do, let's say you want out of the partnership, so you then, um, it says either you have to sell it and give me the money, or you have to allow me to sell it and, and give me your part. Um, I think that's, that's the good argument basically is an ultimatum which basically is saying um, you know, either you purchase it from me if you want out of this real estate so either you purchase your half you know, my half from me or um, I have to purchase your half that's what the Gemara that's what the Talmud says in that case so, so some the question is how do you apply that here some parts can talk about um, the meaning is we're not going to get into all the details but there's a if there's a different opinions early authorities as to what the reason behind it is. Is it because um, because just what we call and you want to pull out of the partnership so you have to do what's right help the partner survive the you, know, you can't just pull out on it so, so therefore in that case the same would apply here listen you want out of the marriage the husband wants out so the, the wife she wants a child so you have to continue help her along with this process if she wants to continue press and allow her to use it in the future that would be according to the Raj's opinion According to the Rush, the Rush says the reason is it's because of Zenan of Zelachasar. That means there's a concept in Jewish law that if you have nothing to lose um, by me, um, you know, doing this, so then you have to allow me to you have to allow me to do it. Because it's not right. I can't force you, but it's not right. Whether it's a business partnership, whatever the case is, if I ask to borrow uh, something which will not harm, I want to use your uh, towel, we're not going to use it in a way that's yeah, ruined. So you have to let me use it. Okay, that's called Zen Nenaz al You have to go all to gain. That person has what to gain. You have nothing to lose. So then you have to do it halachically. It's called Midas uh, time if you don't do it. Midas time. So, so, so that wouldn't be applicable here because listen, I don't want to have another kid. The husband says he doesn't want to have another kid. So according to that, Shad and Good Agud probably wouldn't apply to the case of a preembryo um, according to that. So anyway, it's, it's obviously very complicated. If anyone have personally has these questions, speak to your local rabbi. Uh, um, don't base anything on unless this the has, Unless she wants to claim um, child support after she has no, the kid. Well, clearly it's uh, not Zen and Zen yeah. So if I'm going to have another kid, that's not, you can't say Zen and Well, if she, claim, if she says, I, don't, I, won't have any, I won't make any claims for child right, support, so again, so then he doesn't lose anything. In all these cases, if you have a contract and it says very clearly what to do, that would be the best case scenario, obviously. Mm-hmm. He's having a proper contract and, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's the smartest thing. And I've spoken to fertility clinics here. Actually, I gave this class to a group of lawyers uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago. And we had a, someone from a fertility clinic, Clum, a woman, who runs a fertility clinic, uh, you know, uh, Alon? Carlos from uh, Bay Ramon. Uh, Alon, Dr. Alon. 
So his wife, they run a clinic together. It's Ra- Rafi Benjamini's uh, oh, sister. Benjamini, yeah. Lisa Benjamini. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, she okay. came and she saw the legal aspect. Mm-hmm. She said that you have to, the main thing, but they have a big problem because what to do with these pre-embryos. It happens, it's a big problem. She said they have customers from China coming and using the clinic and they disappear to China and they're stuck with, you know, eight embryos in the freezer. It's a big issue. So it's a, it's a Okay. You have been listening to the MP3 project from the Jewish Ethics Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom. Shalom.